Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody. I'm Tom Brenneman, and you are dialed in. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call one 844 What was... What was life like in, in the Welsh household growing up here in town? Well, you know, we moved to Cincinnati when I was in kindergarten. So I've always considered Cincinnati my hometown, even though my birth certificate tells you that I was born in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, it, it's a middle-class neighborhood. Uh, we grew up on the east side, not in, uh, you know, a rich section. But, uh, you know, I was able to walk to school, went to All Saints Grammar School, uh, and then went across town to St. Xavier High School. And, you know, I had three sisters. I was in charge of all, all the, the outdoor maintenance and cleaning up in the house. So I didn't have to make beds and uh, wash dishes because I had sisters to do that. So, you know, uh, we uh, it, it was just a, a nice middle class uh, growing up. And saying that, I, I got to tell you, by being, you know, born into that situation i was very very lucky i mean i basically started life on second base because i had both my mom and dad in the house uh they cared for us they took care of us uh i was afforded a terrific education at saint xavier and then i had a uh, a scholarship to go down to university of south florida and i I graduated there so you know whereas a lot of kids nowadays grow up and they don't have those kind of things given Mm -hmm. to them i'm very grateful for the head start that i had uh, as a kid well, there's no doubt about it. And we, we've had lengthy conversations uh, on this big interview segment, especially guys like Bob Huggins. Uh, and not only just in the African-American community, but specifically with him, we talked about that and how, you know, there's so many homes where it's only one parent in the household and, and the challenges that is for that parent and the kids and so on and so forth. Um, th- th- there really isn't a price tag that can be placed on that. When you come out of uh, St. Xavier, and you mentioned that you got a scholarship to go down to South Florida. You know, it's weird, Chris. uh, You were never a quote-unquote hard-throwing guy, and I'm assuming you weren't coming out of high school. You know, I I wonder if guys like you, are they still getting recruited to come pitch college baseball? You had a son that pitched in college baseball down in Louisville. 
Well, yeah, there's a lot of recruiting going on. I'll tell you the scholarship story that I had at South Florida. I had never been to Florida in my life, and here I am, a senior in high school. It's February. It's a sleet storm in Cincinnati. And uh, we had made arrangements and because I had always had a sore arm in high school, uh, and we always attributed it to cold weather. We didn't know any better back then, right? So I had never been really south of Kentucky. That's as far as we had ever been on vacation. Uh, so I talked my dad into sending me down to Tampa, Florida, uh, I stayed with a boyfriend of one of my older sisters who was a school teacher at St. Pete High School. And he took me around to three different colleges down there, University of Tampa, uh, Florida Southern University in Lakeland, and University of South Florida in Tampa. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and then we took a look around, and I, we went in to meet the coaches at each place. And I went in to meet the coach at the University of South Florida. His name was Beefy Wright. He started the program down there. He's a big southern guy with a deep voice. And he looked at me and he said, well, I've never heard of you. And I said, that's okay. I said, I'm pretty good. And uh, I've never been cut off any baseball team before. So he said, well, I'll tell you what. If you make the team, we'll give you an out-of-state tuition waiver. So I said, okay. So I got on the plane that night. Delta used to have a direct flight from Tampa to Cincinnati. would leave 11 o'clock at night, get in at 1 a.m. So I got on that plane, got off the plane in Cincinnati, looked at my dad and said, guess what, Dad, I've got a scholarship. And, I, I, of course, I left out the details of I have to make the team. And, number one, the scholarship really is only an out-of-state tuition waiver. But that was the start. I was the only freshman that made the team. Uh, I ended up uh, kind of working my way into a full ride by the time I was a junior. Uh, so it all worked out that way. But that's, the, you know, scholarships come in different forms. And, uh so you could say that I, w I was pretty good at uh, twisting things around a little bit to make it happen. You know, by the time you were there, though, uh, Hall of Famer Robin Roberts took over the program. It, it is so rare. I mean, heck, I don't know how much it happens anymore. Maybe Deion Sanders is an example of that now in college football and, and what he's done and moving on to Colorado. But, man, it's so rare, and, and, and what an unbelievable experience that must have been for a pitcher to have Robin Roberts as your head coach down there at USF. You know, he came in my senior year, and uh, I was on the athletic committee. I was the lone student representative on this athletic committee that they put together, uh, which included professors and board of regents and the president of the university and so on. And we were in charge of hiring the new coaches. So when Robin Roberts threw his, his name into the hat, I mean, it was pretty much a slam dunk that they were going to hire him. And uh, so I had him in my, my senior year. Now, my junior year, I had a very good year. Um, I, you know, I was one of the you – know, I got, got some accolades in the South and so on for, for being one of the best pitchers in the state of Florida. And he saw me pitch the first time ever in the fall, fall workouts, and he looked at me and said, that's not going to work in pro ball at all. And I said, well, Coach, you know, I was 10-3 and three last year. I had a 1.8 and run average and da-da-da. He says, I don't care. That's not going to work in pro ball. And he looked at my style of pitching. So we had a complete remake that fall and that winter. And that's one of the reasons why I was able to get, you know, professional baseball success because uh, he looked at me and he changed me as soon as he thought he needed to. What did he change? Well, he, I was a, uh, a pitcher that everything that I threw cut into a right-handed hitter, Al Leiter type, except I didn't throw hard. Had a very good curveball, but I kind of threw across my body, and I had some defects in my delivery that really didn't allow me to get that fastball to run away from a right-handed hitter. 
And that's what most left-handers do. They've got that runner. And uh, I had to work very hard to get to that. And um, it really helped me control the outside part of the strike zone. But he recognized it immediately. And I was in denial. Uh, but I finally came around to be a believer. Um, when, when you get drafted two years in a row by the New York Yankees, and finally the second time uh, when you get drafted um, in 1977, you sign with the team. Um, I mentioned earlier, th- this is when the Yankees are the Yankees. I mean, they've always been the Yankees, but they were the Yankees. They were winning World Series. They had all these unbelievable stars. What was that experience like when you go to spring training? Correct me if I'm wrong. Back in those days, that's when the Yankees used to train down there in Fort Lauderdale. You're right. It, it, was, uh, it was like New York South. Um, I was invited to spring tra- the big league spring training in 1979. So the Yankees had just won the World Series in 78. We're talking about you know, guys like Thurman Munson and Reggie Jackson and Bucky Dent and Greg Nettles and Mickey Rivers and Tommy John and um, you know, it just go on and on. Ron Guidry. I mean, it was just, it was like being around the Yankee version of the Big Red Machine. And uh, I, I was somewhat intimidated. And not only that, you know, back in those days, the Yankees, when they had spring training, they would invite a host of incredible Yankee icons in the spring training to be guest instructors. I mean, Mickey Mantle was in camp. Whitey Ford would used to take all the left-handed pitchers out in one of the way backfields behind the stadium in Fort Lauderdale, and we'd work on our pickoff moves. And I looked at one of the other guys, and I said, can you believe that our coach for pickoff moves is Whitey Ford? Well, what, what's going on here? I mean, i got to be – somebody pinch me because this can't really be happening. So it, it was really incredible. Uh, but i got to say, the, the Yankee players, they were so good about accepting the young players. In fact, I was just out with, uh, playing golf the other day with uh, uh, Rich Gossage and uh, reminded him of all this stuff. And, and uh, he was one of the guys that kind of took everybody under his wing. Uh, it, it was great experience. The Yankees in those days used to get, you know, a 1,000 people just to watch batting practice. And uh, it, it was really something else. They were the entire spectacle of town in Fort Lauderdale. Did you get to know at all Billy Martin or be around him? or you know, Because that, that was always such a circus. It seemed to never end, kicking him out, bringing him back, kicking him out, bringing him back. What, what was he like to be around if you had that chance? You know, I didn't really have a chance to be around him that much. Bob Lemon was the manager when I first came in there, and Martin was on the outs with, with George. Uh, I got to know George Steinbrenner actually a little bit more than I knew Billy Martin, but the, the Billy Martin stories were everywhere. And, uh, of course, the conflicts with George and Billy were everywhere. So we got kind of an inside scoop on, you know, what was going on behind the scenes there. And it, uh, believe me, it, it, was, it was just as much as a drama as everybody portrayed it to be. And that's where you had a chance to actually meet Lou Pinella for the first time, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, Pinella, yeah, what a character. He was on that team. And I used to think that the best hour of comedy ever was the – the half hour to an hour that the team would go out in the right field, they lay out on the ground out there in the, in the, the beautiful green grass in Fort Lauderdale, and we'd do our stretching. But basically it was a stand-up, stand-up comedy act by Mickey Rivers and Lou Pinella and Greg Nettles and Catfish Hunter, and they're going back and forth at it. So here's a team that just won the World Series. They're very cocky, and they're just having a blast. And I remember that uh, uh, Pinella was a great practical joker. He used to irritate the heck out of Bobby Mercer 
because Mercer was very meticulous about taking his a towel. They'd cut up a, a towel into a small piece. They'd line one side with athletic tape, and then the other side they'd dump a bunch of pine tar on it, and they'd rub it around, and that was Bobby Mercer's pine tar rag. And it was so perfectly made that he could fold it up and put it in his back pocket. Well, when he was in the batting cage, whenever he did not put it in his back pocket, Pinelli used to go over and get that thing, and he'd open it up, and he'd rub it in all the dirt, and then he'd fold it back up, and he'd put it right there. And when Mercer got back, got out of hitting, he would go and pick up his pine tar rag. You look at it, it'd be all dirty and ruined. And he <laughs> wanted to kill Pinella. And Pinella had already made it his way out the right field laughing like crazy. So uh, that's the kind of stuff. Another thing, Pinella, you know, I remember watching Pinella in, in spring training. He would come into the clubhouse, and, you know, as he's changing into his uniform, they had, they had mirrors on these big pillars inside the Yankee clubhouse in spring training in Lauderdale. And they were like the, the mirrors that you would see in a department store. You know, you got to try a shirt on, you walk mm. over to the column, and there's a mirror. Well, Pinella would stand in front of the mirror completely naked, and he would say, Lou Pinella, batting stance number 237. <laughs> and he'd get into a different batting stance. And he'd say, Lou Pinella, batting stance number 444. You know, and so he was always trying these batting stances, but he would do it in front of everybody with no clothes on in the clubhouse. And it was just a riot. And people would be hawing at him and everything. And it was, it was, it was just really, you know, if, if this isn't like the big leagues, I want to be there. And that's what I thought. Well, you finally got a chance to taste the big leagues, but it wasn't for the Yankees. You were traded a huge six-player trade, and off you go to, to San Diego. Were, were you bummed about getting traded away for the New York Yankees, or you looked at the San Diego thing as an opportunity? Because that was still relatively a young franchise. You know, I look back now, and I wish that I had made the Yankee team at least for a year, because if you ever play for the Yankees, it really changes your life, the way that they take care of their alumni. But at the time, I didn't know that. I didn't even think about that. I wanted to get to the big leagues. It looks like that I was headed back to AAA uh, for the third year in a row. They had just stockpiled talent everywhere. There was no room uh, at the big league level for any pitching. So when I got the call on, on April the 1st that we were traded, uh, it, was, uh, it was really good for me. It, in fact, I'll tell you quickly how the whole thing happened. Uh, you know, you always have a, a – a curfew in spring training. We were staying at the Gold Ocean Miles Hotel down in Fort Lauderdale by the sea. My roommate, Tim Lawler, left-handed pitcher, uh, and I, would, we'd go out and we figured out a way to circumvent being caught for being out too late past curfew. So we would go down the beach about three or four hotels, walk up the beach, and then come in the back door. So if we came out past curfew, no problem, no one ever caught us. But we stayed out late one night. We came back in, and that light was blinking on the telephone. I told Waller, I said, that must be for you. You pick it up. He said, no, I'm not picking it up. You pick it up. So we went back and forth, and nobody wanted to pick it up because it would show that we had missed curfew, right? So we felt we were going to get sent down to my early camp. Finally, we, we turned the radio on, and we're listening to a late-night FM, and the, uh, the FM host comes on, and he says, the Yankees have just made a six-player trade, and he reads all the names in the trade, and he reads my name and Lawler's name. So we get out the phone book, we look up the station, we call the station on the phone, and he said, who is this? And I said, this is Chris Welsh. He said, yep, you've been traded. So, so, so then we, we, we respond to all the messages, and it turns out we have about 15 messages, everybody from the manager all the way up to George Steinbrenner's office. 
And uh, that was April Fool's Day, and we headed out to San Diego the next day. That is an unbelievable story. That is a, it just goes to show you how the world's changed, man, among many, many other things you could talk about. That, that is a, an unbelievable story. Um, you know, you Tommy, get to, San to Diego- finish that story out, to finish that story out, so we get on a plane and we go to Phoenix, and the team, the, the Padres at that time were training in Yuma, but they would take week-long trips to Phoenix and play against all the teams that were stationed in Phoenix. So we're at the Valley Ho Hotel, place that I know you know very yep. well. And uh, so you got to remember that the Yankees, all the front office guys were walking around like bankers. I mean, three-piece suits. They were always dressed up. We get into into uh, uh, Phoenix, and there's uh, uh, Jack McKeon in a, in a very loud Hawaiian shirt, white pants, Velcro shoes you know, a condo commando, white belt and everything, standing in the middle of the lobby with a cigar holding court. And Lala and I come in with our bags, and we go up to him and said, uh, uh, Mr. McKeon? And he goes, ah, the Yankee boy, you must be Lala and you must be Welsh. I said, no, no, you got it mixed up. He says, it doesn't matter. You're the number four starter. You're the number five starter. (laughs) And that's how I made the major leagues. What do you remember about your major league debut? Where were you? How nervous were you? I was nervous as could be. It was the day game, second game of the season in San Francisco, and I had a full house. And uh, I remember pitching to Billy North. I finally got warm. You know, I was warmed up. I, mean, I was warmed up when I got to the ballpark. My heart has been racing for 12 hours. And so I go down there, and, and I pitched to the first batter, Bill North, and he hits a ball over the head of our center fielder, Rupert Jones, who catches it up against the, the fence in dead center field, uh, at Candlestick Park and hauls it in. And all I could think was, man, that was the leadoff hitter. What am I going to do when I get to the middle of the lineup? So I ended up pitching in five innings, didn't get a decision, but I did uh, beat the Giants the next time out, uh, the four to one, uh, went seven innings. And uh, that was when Frank Robinson was the manager of the Giants. I was always a big Frank Robinson fan. So that's, that meant something special to me. Well, you know, as you start to get going, Chris, I mean, you had put together just some unbelievable minor league seasons, and you get this chance now to be in the rotation in San Diego. Um, Dick Williams comes in there. He had had great success uh, as the manager of the A's, but a guy who always seemed to rub people the wrong way, even if they were winning and winning titles uh, and that kind of thing. Did, did your career change when, 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 or at least the trajectory of where you thought it might go or where it was going when Williams took over? Yeah, he did. You know, prior to that, the first manager we had in San Diego was Frank Howard. You, you couldn't find a nicer, more gentle man than Frank Howard. You know, every once in a while he'd flip the switch and go crazy. But for the most part, he, he was just as good as they come. I mean, just golden. Dick came here with a completely different attitude. And – they, they wanted to make this team into a winner. They thought they had some talent on that team, uh, young talent that they had traded for. And I got off to a bad start with Dick Williams because we were playing a spring training game right before the end of the spring training season in 1982. And um, there was a ball hit to the right side of the infield that I thought the first baseman had. As it turned out, he bobbled it. I was late getting the first base, and I got there at the same time the runner did. The runner, the runner was Don Baylor and he decided to slide feet first in the first base. And by doing so, he hit my foot, and he bro- and I broke my foot. 
And I didn't realize this. I walked back to the mound. I had bases loaded at that point. I struck out Brian Downing to get out of the inning. But as soon as I ran off the mound and put my weight on the balls of my feet, the bone in my foot kind of broke apart. And uh, I almost crumpled into a heap. And instead of saying, you know, what's wrong with you? Are you okay? He started in on me like, how can you be late covering first base? Oh. And basically, that was the beginning of the of a very tough relationship with Dick Williams for me. He he demanded a lot out of his players, and uh, that was a very bad way to get it going. Didn't didn't early on in your career there you come back and pitch a shutout against the Reds? Yeah, I did. As a matter of fact, that was the 1981 uh, split season. Remember the players' strike? Yeah. Yep. And the the Reds had the best best record in baseball overall. But because they did not win either half, the first half or the second half, they didn't get invited to postseason. And uh, they were rolling right along. I think they had won seven games in a row going up the West Coast, starting in San Francisco and then L.A., and they came down to San Diego. This was in the beginning of September. So that's back when the Reds were in the, the Western Division of the National League, and we played you know, teams like San Diego and the Dodgers three times. Anyway, I pitched a, a shutout against the Reds, and um, I remember – you know, that old Jack Murphy Stadium was perfect for pitchers because it was 417 or 420 feet, the dead center field with a 17-foot wall. And I remember Johnny Bench hitting a ball out there that Rupert Jones caught right up against the wall for the out. And Bench came running by the, the pitcher's mound as he was making a lap back to the dugout, and he said, go warm up, and uh, which meaning I was throwing some serious puffs. So the next time he did the same thing, except he ran by and he said, Welsh, go warm up. And that's when I realized that Johnny Bench knew my name. And uh, I was just tickled to death. I said, I can't believe Johnny Bench knows who I am. Uh, because I was, a, you know, such a huge Reds fan that this was like a dream come true. So, you know, in today's ballpark, it would have been three home runs. Back in those days, it was three fly ball outs. I was on the Joe Nuxall star of the game show to wrap it all up. And that was really the highlight of that year. I can guarantee you that. Well, if I'm not mistaken, in that game, you also had a base hit and knocked in a run. Yeah, I, think, I, I believe I did, yeah. Uh, it, uh, I always thought I could hit a little bit. Um, you know, my philosophy as a hitter, really, as a, as a pitcher that is hitting, let me put it that way, was that I never wanted that guy to strike me out. And I would choke up as far as I had to just to try to make, make contact. And that year with the Padres, I think I had 11 runs batted in, and 10 of those came with two outs. And so I had more two-out RBIs than the guy that batted after me, which was Gary Templeton. So I used to always get on about that. (laughs) Um, You have a chance eventually to come back to Cincinnati, and Pete Rose is your manager. Um, Now, you talked about growing up in Cincinnati uh, and being a Reds fan. And Pete Rose was the very face of the Reds franchise. That had to be surreal. Even now, you know, as you're starting to become a little bit older guy, I mean, it's still Pete Rose, right? And now you're playing for him. You know, it's even more surreal as to how I got the job. Uh, You know, back in 1986, that was right in the middle of Major League collusion. The owners were not talking to any free agents, whether you were a real free agent or you were a released player like me. I contacted everybody. I wrote a letter to every general manager. I called every ball club. All I wanted really at that point was an invitation to spring training, a minor league deal with an invite. I couldn't get anywhere. 
So here we are, like the day before pitchers are going to report, and I heard that Pete Rose is up at my old college, University of South Florida, and he was filming a TV commercial. So I got in my car, and I drove up from Bradenton, Florida to, to, uh, to Tampa, and I'm kind of waiting in the shadows while Pete's finishing his commercial shoot. And he comes out, and he looks at me, and he says, Hey, Chris, how you doing? Because I always pitch really well against Pete for whatever reason. And uh, he said, Where are you going to be this year? I said, oh, Pete, didn't you hear I'm going to be with the Reds? He said, that's great. I can't wait for it. He said, no, I said, no, Pete, I'm kidding. You know, really, I said, I talked to Bill Burgess, and he wanted nothing to do with me. And all of a sudden, Pete got real serious. He looked at me. He says, that SOB, he doesn't run this club. I run this club. He said, you be down at Al Lopez Field tomorrow at 8 o'clock. I'll have a jersey with your name on it hanging in the locker. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have the general manager really hating me, but I've got Pete Rose on my side. So I'll take my chances. So <clears throat> sure enough, I show up the next morning down at Al Lopez Field, and there is my, uh, my, my jersey, number 45, with a name on it, and I couldn't believe it. And I had a great spring that year. Um, in fact, I gave up back-to-back doubles to the first two batters I faced and uh, then never let another batter get the second base the entire spring. And I was the last guy to get cut. Actually, they they told me I made the team, so I'm coming to to, uh, to Tampa. I've got my stuff ready to throw it on the on the team bus, and at the very last minute, Mario Soto decides that his arm is going to be good enough to be the opening day starter. So they basically throw my stuff off the bus. They head up to Cincinnati, and I head out to Denver. But you eventually had the chance to come back and pitch for the major league <clears throat> club and put on a red uniform. Yeah, that was in May. I pitched down in Denver for a while, and then uh, came up. In fact, that the first day that I pitched against the Red, uh, I pitched for the Reds was the, in May, and uh, it was against the uh, St. Louis Cardinals. And that was the day that the leadoff hitter was Vince Coleman, and I I walked Coleman to start the game, and then proceeded to throw over to first base 21 times. And uh, I mean, everybody in the ballpark except the concessionaires are booing me, and uh, even my my family and friends tickets. Uh, but uh, it, it was the start of something big. Uh, I, I love playing for Pete Rose. Uh, I love playing in my hometown. We had six of us on the team that year that when it aligned. When I started a game and when Pete played himself at first base, and he played himself about half the time, uh, we had six players on the field that all went to high school in Cincinnati. Boy, that's unbelievable. I mean, that's un- who, who are the others? Yeah, yeah, what, Ronnie Oster was up by that point in time? Who else was there? Yeah, well, Barry Larkin was a rookie that yep. year. Buddy yep. Bell was playing third base. Pete yep. was at first, and Dave Parker playing right. Right, right, exactly. Boy, uh, unbelievable. Um, okay, so you, when, you, when you're out of the game, you're no longer a player, and, and now you're trying to figure out what to do with the rest of your life. There, I mean, there was a decent amount of time there where you actually left the, the town uh, and left the sport – um, and you, you had lived down, you were moving, you had moved down to Florida. Um, what, what were you doing in, in those years after you quit playing? Well, number one, I was missing baseball because it was in my blood and, and so many players, you know, I can relate to the, the separation anxiety that you have at the end of your career, whether you play 20 years or whether you play two years, you know, you've been doing it your whole life. So 
Uh, I did a couple of different things. Uh, the first thing I did was I got involved with some some other ball players and some politicians, and we started a business down there completely unrelated to baseball. It was uh, a, uh, an employee leasing business, uh, so it was about taxes and, and uh, employer information and retirement plans and things like this. And so I went out quickly, uh, did quick study, and got a you know insurance license. I got a real estate license. Uh, I went out and started doing the business thing, and uh, I was always kind of in, in the corner of my eye looking for a way to get back into baseball. So I started a newsletter um, or a trade letter, whatever you want to call it, on pitching. And um, <clears throat> I used to send this out. I had a pretty good subscriber base. This is way back before, you know, blogs and Substack and so on. And uh, I would uh, write articles about pitching, uh, giving pitching advice. I'd interview players and pitchers about you know, how to throw certain pitches and so on. And I did that for a couple of years, and I did that really to kind of stay connected with the game. And uh, then, uh, then one day, <clears throat> about six years later, my dad calls me, uh, and he's living up in Cincinnati. He says, hey, I'm looking in the Inquirer here, and it seems like the Reds have not hired their TV guys, uh, their broadcasters for this year. And, I mean, here we are in February. I mean, it's just about starting spring training. So I, in the meantime, I had done some college games on baseball for Sports Channel Florida. And back in those days, really nobody watched college baseball, maybe girlfriends and families, about the only audience that was turning the TV on. And, uh, but I had some experience behind the mic. So I, I sent up a, a resume, and I got a call back and say, from Bill Spiegel, who was the uh, yep. general manager of WLWT Channel 5 in Cincinnati. And he said, we don't deal in resumes here. We deal in, um, in you know, videotapes. We, we want to know what you look like, what you sound like. So I waited until my wife went out to go shopping, and I put the camera on top of the coffee table. And, you know, back in those days, those VCRs were the size of suitcases. So I hooked them all up, and I pressed record, and I ran around to the front and said, hi, I'm Chris Welsh. And in 150 words, this is why I want to be the Reds TV announcer. And so I spliced in as best I could, you know, the one and only home run that I hit. And in that, the commentary of me running around the bases was what, done by your dad, Marty, and Steve Fiziok. And in there, they mentioned what a great guy I was and so on and so forth. So I did that. I put some other stuff in there, you know, some stand-up and so on. And I sent it to Bill Spiegel, and I didn't hear a thing. And uh, <clears throat> now we're right up against the clock in spring training, and the phone rings. And he says, uh, and uh, let me back up. I told very few friends that I had done this because, you know, what you don't want to do is apply for a job, yep. not get it, and then have it explained to everybody why you didn't get the job. So uh, I didn't tell anybody, but I did tell a few guys. And so the phone rings. I pick it up, and he says, hi, this is the, this is the uh, Channel 5 calling. Uh, and I said, no, it's not. And, and I hung up on him. I said, I thought it was one of my friends pranking me. And he called immediately back, said, this is Bill Spiegel. If you want the job, don't hang up. So that's how I ended up being the Reds announcer. That's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> and, and, I mean, it, when you walk into a big league TV booth, and look, television has changed. Everything has changed as the years have gone by and the equipment and the technology and all this kind of thing. You know, much like your major league debut, uh, you know, now you're making your professional broadcasting debut for a major league baseball team. Were you more nervous for that or when you pitched? 
I was more nervous for that. I got to tell you, because you know, baseball is something you've done your whole life. You know, when 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 it's all said and done, you can always just kind of close your eyes, rear back, and say, "Okay, I'm really, you know, I'm not 25 years old. I'm 12 years old, pitching in an all-star game. I can do it." But when you're doing something brand new like broadcasting, and let's face it, um, the players that get in as broadcast analysts, they they come in the back door. You know, I, I think the level of expectation from the part from the fans as far as you know being a wordsmith and being able to describe the action and so on isn't as high for an analyst as it is for a play-by-play guy. And uh, but so I really wasn't sure, you know, when I should jump in, when I shouldn't, how long my stories would be. And I go back, I used to go back and look at some of these video uh, videotapes, and I'm like, man, will this guy ever shut up? And uh, that was me I was talking about. So it, it took a while, but, yeah, it was really nervous to get it going. I mean, obviously, if somebody would have told you back then, that first day you walk in the booth, uh, that here we would be having, you would be having a conversation with me or anybody else in 2023, that you are now celebrating, uh, what, 40, 30 years in the booth as a Reds' primary television analyst is, is beyond belief. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You're right. It is beyond belief. I just kind of pinched myself saying, man, I've been so lucky. And, and really, part of the luck that I've had is the broadcast partners that I've had along the way. And uh, I mean, some of the greatest ones in the game. I, I, I've got such respect for George Grant. He and I worked together for 17 years. Uh, during that time, uh, you know, George was one of the guys. He was one of the reasons why I used to pirate uh, – cable back when I was in college. You know, when they first yep. had cable come out and the apartments, you know, were all strung up to get cable, we figured out a way we could splice them and we could get free cable in there so we could watch ESPN. And George was the first ever ESPN studio host. Yep. I remember that. That was the reason you, you know, I, I blame George for me, uh, you know, uh, committing crimes of uh, pirating cable back in those days. <laughs> uh, but I got to work with your dad. For several years, when the games were on over the air with Channel 5, he'd come in and do three innings, and it was so much fun. God, I love working with Marty. And uh, and then when George retired, uh, you came in. And uh, I'll tell you, it, it, I've just been lucky one after another, and I've got John Sadak to work with, uh, a, a host of a number of other people along the way. But, you know, the play-by-play the -play guy carries the load, and I think the biggest thing for an analyst is to – figure out how to work with the play-by-play -play guy so that it sounds like your best friends. And I think that's very important. Um, you started, I, I don't know how many years ago, you tell me now, uh, we were working together at the time when you were embarking on this BaseballRulesAcademy.com. And before we get into some of the rule changes for baseball this year and the effects we've already seen through the first, you know, less than a handful of games in spring training, we'll get to that in a minute. But, but, but talk a little bit about Baseball Rules Academy, because I was explaining before you came on, you know, that you, you've done some unbelievable work there in, in, in trying to explain to fans uh, certain rules, certain ones you never see or rarely see. You match it up to video. Uh, you make it fun, sort of interactive, where you can ask fans, okay, what do you think should have happened here before you actually give the correct answer? You know, it, it all started with me, Tommy, by, and I think it was before you got there as my partner, it, w there was a quirky play on the field. And I always thought because I played 
you know, 10 years of professional baseball, and now here I was around for another 10 years or so as a as a broadcaster. And I knew the rules. I used to read the rule book in the wintertime, you know, to try my make myself familiar with it. And uh, this quirky play happened, and I had no clue what was going on. So I looked through the rule book while we were in a break, and I couldn't come up with the answer. And I determined right then and there that um, I'm going to learn the rules because this is embarrassing that you have a guy in the booth that's supposed to be a professional announcer, and he doesn't know the rules of the game that he's broadcasting. So I decided to kind of delve into it a little bit. And uh, so I just wanted to do create a little database for me that I could put, type in a slang word like batted ball hits its runner. And then up the rule, the, the rule would pop up, and I would have that as an access. But the more I got into the baseball rules, the more I realized that it was very complex. Mm-hmm. And um, there were very tough rules to figure out and so on. So all of a sudden I tackled probably the worst rule set of any sport out there because, you know, you got different school levels like high school and college and little league and um, world baseball uh, classic rules and so on, and then you've got big league rules. So uh, it's very complicated, but I, with the help of a lot of other people, I put together a website that I've been doing probably now for 10 years. Um, I've got, you know, hundreds of blogs and videos up there. I've got instructional videos up there on how to play baseball, too. And uh, it's been really a labor of love, but it's kind of my way of saying thank you to the baseball community for allowing me to have a lifelong career in baseball because uh yeah, that's really what it's all about um the rules this year uh pitch clock your initial impressions of the whole thing well i'm you know i i can't say i'm a purist but i don't like rule changes but i like this you know what's happened here in my estimation is over the last few years analytics have taken over and they've shown that with pitchers throwing as hard as they can, you know, with these nasty sliders and spider attack and everything like this, that it's very hard to hit the baseball nowadays. And you never see an inning hardly ever where you're going to have three, four hits in an inning where there's an old-fashioned rally building. It just doesn't work. Guys are swinging for the fences. And it got to be very boring. And I think a lot of that was the product of the analytics, uh, which really looked for inefficiencies in the game. And, boy, did they ever expose them. But the problem was – now that you, you know, you go from two minutes every time a ball is in play to four minutes every time a ball is in play. You go from uh, a baseball game of two hours and 30 minutes to a game of three hours and 10 minutes. So I think that the major baseball realized, oh, we can't, we can't take analytics away. And we can't tell pitchers to throw slower. But we can do something to speed up the game. So I think the clock has worked in that. I'm, I like it a lot. i got to tell you um, – I'm not missing anything from the old game where guys are stepping out to adjust their, you know, their their batting gloves or they're knocking dirt off their cleats and all the the pitchers are taking an extra lap around the mound. That was all a bunch of BS. And you realize now these guys can play baseball faster and just at the same level as you could when you take your time. All right, I want to ask you just a couple of more questions. Um, and I've asked others this question, but yours, I'm really interested in hearing the answer. And I don't know if you can quantify or qualify, but but let's give a stab at it. Much has been made about uh, Hunter Green, Nick Lodolo, Ashcraft to a slightly lesser extent. But let's just put all three of them into this boat for this question. Um the Reds are not expected to be good. They're not expected to be a good offensive team. That All those things may prove to be dead wrong. 
But but for you uh, and for Reds fans and for the Reds brass, what would be considered a good year or a progress year that you want to see out of these young pitchers? Uh, yeah, first of all, they've got to stay healthy. And I'm a firm believer in, you know, play within your own physical limits. Um, I think the, the trend of trying to get pitchers to throw harder and harder every year basically injures more pitchers than it helps. So when you've got two talented guys, and I'm going to take Ashcraft out of it and put him on a little bit lower level than okay. I do Nick Lodolo and Hunter Green. <clears throat> um, these guys have the ability. They've got the delivery to repeat and be able to become consistent. They have good moxie on the mound, and they have good experience. And I think that, you know, now what you've got to do is you've got to keep these guys healthy. And from my book, I always go back to what Tom Seaver used to say. Seaver used to say that he would pitch a 90% effort, and then when he needed a little bit extra, that's when he would zoom the ball in there at 100%. But he didn't do it all the time. And I think that it's important for Lodolo and Hunter Green to kind of take that mindset because I want those guys to pitch 180 to 200 innings this year. And that means you got to stay healthy and you got to make every one of your starts. All right, last thing I want to ask you, and this is more on a personal note, um, because I, I, I think that there are a lot of people who, who have to face this reality in their lives, and especially as we get older and our parents get older, um, your wife, Beth, had two parents uh, that, that have had a lot of uh, medical uh, issues over the last couple of years. You lost your father-in-law. She lost her dad. But you and Beth basically became health care providers for her mom and dad. Uh, you gave up whatever things you might want to go do literally on an hour-by-hour, day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, year plus um, to go take care of them and provide for them. If you, if you had to give advice to somebody who might be facing that same kind of situation or maybe something you learned that, that, that even though you might be, you know, 60-something years old, it, it never dawned on you or you never learned, what, what would some of those words be? Well, you know, I, I'll need to go back a little bit further than that, if you don't mind. My father sure. uh, was diagnosed and then died of Alzheimer's. And, uh, you know, when my mom couldn't take care of him anymore, we put him in an Alzheimer's home. And they took great care of him. It was up at Arden Course in Cincinnati. They just were so loving up there. The average length of stay for an Alzheimer's patient in, in a facility like that is about 18 months. And he, la he lasted more than three years. And uh, it was a slow deterioration. And uh, all during that time, as he began to more and more become less uh, able to converse and less able to remember things and so on, the more I realized I really wish that I had taken more time to be around my dad earlier. And that was, that's the biggest thing for me, is that don't wait until you know, your parents are to the point where they just need help. You know, be their best friends right now. If you've had any, any issues throughout your life, and everybody has parents, you know, everybody has conflict with their mom and dad some, somewhere along the line, 
some worse than others. But, you know, put that aside. Realize that the most precious thing in the world is time. And don't waste a day being angry or not talking to your parents because you're angry. Uh, put it all behind you and just move on. And I think that's what I learned when we got in a situation where we were taking care of Beth's dad. His name was Phil Myers, and he was diagnosed with ALS. And it was a slow tick. Uh, it's a horrible disease. And uh, But what I learned from him is that attitude is everything. Even though he knew that he had a death sentence, uh, he had a great attitude. He was smiling. And uh, it, it was a joy to be around him, even though we knew that it was a, a fatal disease. And uh, so it, it, that's the kind of thing that I didn't want to make that mistake the second time, where I really didn't appreciate the time I had with my dad when I had the opportunity until it was too late. I didn't want to let that time go by me now, even though, you know, my father-in-law was not my father. Uh, he was very, we were very close, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss a minute. I really appreciate you sharing that uh, with me and with us and our entire audience. And, um, and uh, we thank you for all your, your generous time here today. I send our best to uh, Beth and all the kids, and Godspeed ahead, my friend. We'll catch up sometime soon. Well, Tommy, thank you very much for having me on. And I got to say, say one thing before I, I get out of here that you and I worked together for 12 years. And I know you probably as well as, I don't know, anybody, any one of your TV partners anyway. We became very good friends. We go out socially after games uh, and off days and so on. Got to know your family very well. And I'll tell you, you know, I think that, and this bothers me every day. I think about you every day. And I think that you've been handled uh, a, a, an unlucky and very difficult sentence as far as like a penalty for saying a bad thing on the air and um, people don't know the things that you've done for people uh, the surgeries for people that you've paid for that you don't even know uh, the young man that you put through college that you don't broadcast it out there that the, the money that you've given to uh, Marymount High School and it goes on and on and on that, that uh, there's so much beneath the surface uh, of Tom Brenneman that I think people w would should appreciate. Uh, I love you very much, man. You've taught me so much as a broadcaster. To this day, I believe that you have the best big call, like a big-time home run, of anybody in baseball who I ever, ever heard or have been the pleasure to work with. And uh, I thank you for all the guidance you give me along the way. And I uh, hope you get a chance to get back in the booth, my man, because you certainly deserve it. Well, I, I really, really appreciate it, Chris. Those words mean more than you know. And um, thank you. I love you, my man. Thanks for the time today. You'll always be my buddy, Tommy. All right. Amen to that. Amen to that, my man. Okay, buddy. Take care. All right. Chris Welsh. Boy, what a, what a great dude. I mean, just a great dude. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.